Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Another season of Game of Thrones is headed our way, and you know what that means. Another season of Nerdette Recaps Game of Thrones with Peter Seigel. It's just like regular Nerdette, except Peter Seigel is there all the time for some reason. <laughs> it comes out on Mondays, not on Fridays, and we only talk about the most recent episode of Game of Thrones. It all starts July 10th when we'll have a review of what happened last season and some predictions about season 7, and then every Monday after that we will have an episode that comes out the day after the show airs on HBO. That's Nerdette Recaps Game of Thrones with Peter Sagal. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. And I'm Trisha Bobita. Today we're talking to film and TV director Leslie Linka-Gladder. She's directed, and I'm just going to start reading until I run out of breath here, Twin Peaks, Now and Then, Law and Order, Special Victims Unit, Freaks and Geeks, Gilmore Girls, The O.C., Grey's Anatomy, E.R., West Wing, Weeds, The Mentalist, Mad Men, Good Wife. I ran out before I got to True Blood, The Leftovers, Walking Dead, and The Newsroom. There's so many more. So basically a little of everything. And let's not forget the Gilmore Girls pilot. And the Gilmore Girls pilot. And what she's maybe best known for most recently is Homeland. Let's play a little clip that's not spoilery, so don't worry. At what point did the agency know Brody was a bad guy? Let me handle this. Miss Matheson. Mr. Chairman, a worldwide manhunt is underway for the congressman. Yeah, I think I'm aware of that, counsel. As a condition of appearing here today, you promised not to compel my client to give testimony which might compromise that effort. I'm not asking her to compromise a damn thing. I'm asking her just how cozy the CIA was with a traitor who went on to kill 219 Americans. Well, what if I told you I don't think he did it? Carrie. Did what? Kill all those people. I don't think Brody knew the bomb was in his car. That's a clip from the opening of season three of Homeland. This is Showtime's high-stakes spy thriller with Claire Danes as the lead, who is a reckless and brilliant and complicated CIA agent. Leslie is an executive producer and frequently directs the show, and her work on Homeland has earned her not less than five Emmy nominations. She's also got one more for Mad Men. Leslie, welcome to Nerdette. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. I got exhausted listening to you talk about (laughs) all those credits. Oh, my goodness. But thank goodness I love being a storyteller and that I've gotten to tell so many different kinds of stories. I, I have to say I'm grateful that this is what I get to do. It seems like a fascinating job, and we're thrilled as TV nerds to talk to you more about lots of those shows, including Homeland. So we will talk about Homeland, but just for folks who may be worried, it won't be a spoilery thing about the most recent season. But we want to just step back a little and talk about how you got your start. How did you first become a professional storyteller? You know, what's so interesting is that nobody has the same path to directing. Everyone you talk to who is in film has a different way they started out. And there's not one right path to follow. And mine's really strange. I mean, I have to say, I was a modern dancer and a choreographer. 
And this is back in the dark ages. And (laughs) at that point, I had been living six years in Europe, in Paris and London, working with different companies there, dance companies. And then I got a grant to teach, choreograph, and perform through the Far East. And I was based in Tokyo, Japan. And yes, I do speak Japanese. Wow. Um, So I can order a mean sushi if we're ever in the same city. (laughs) And, you know, I loved what I was doing. I was not looking for a career change. But one day in Tokyo, I was in Shibuya Ku, and there was, I wanted a cup of coffee. And there was a coffee shop on the right and one on the left. And I went to the one on the right very arbitrarily. And in that coffee shop, there was no seats. There was one seat available with an older Japanese gentleman. And he kind of waved me saying, you know, take the seat with me. And we ended up spending the afternoon in that coffee shop together. He turned out to be an extraordinary person. And he spoke 12 languages fluently, including perfect King's English. And he and his wife kind of became my Japanese parents slash mentors. And eventually, he told me a series of six stories that happened to him. And what they had in common is they were all on Christmas Eves, all during different wars and about the human condition. And when he told me these stories, I knew I had to pass it on and I knew it wasn't dance. So if I had walked into the coffee shop on the left... I might very well still be a choreographer. I mean, but I felt compelled. These stories were so profound. And I felt he had somehow given them to me for a reason. And I met a film director and told him these stories. And he said, um, that's a film. And he was actually the first director I ever, you know, apprenticed with and shadowed with. And that was George Miller, George Miller of Road Warrior fame. And you ended up getting your first break with Steven Spielberg, right? I did. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. What happened? So I did this film and it was literally everything I was told not to do if I wanted a job in Hollywood, meaning it was three quarters in Japanese with subtitles. It had flashbacks, narration. It was a period piece set in World War II, and it had one Caucasian actor in it. I mean, these are not things that make up a commercial project. But, you know, I didn't care. I wanted to tell this story, and I did. But the good thing about coming from a dance background is you can't cheat. Your leg goes up in the air or it doesn't. It doesn't matter what you say about yourself. People are going to know in a second whether you're telling the truth. So um, I worked on like 10 other films in the program I was in. And that program was the American Film Institute Directing Workshop for Women. And I made my film through that program. And it did indeed get nominated for an Academy Award, which is crazy, fluke of nature. And Steven Spielberg saw the film in a plane and called me up. And I thought it was a a prank call from one of my friends and hung up. You hung up on Steven Spielberg? (laughs) I hung up on Steven Spielberg. (laughs) Will you put that on your tomb, you think? Probably. Oh, my God. Thank God he called back, though. That must happen to him a lot, actually, though, if he's calling people, cold calling them. You're not Steven Spielberg. You're not. (laughs) Yeah. And Santa Claus is on the other line. (laughs) So you mentioned that modern dance kind of taught you that you can't cheat when it comes to different versions of directing. And I wonder what else from choreography and modern dance you've been able to apply to your directing career. Well, there's actually a lot. And, you know, I do a lot of action. And it never seemed like a big deal to me because it's actually just moving things through space, which is what dance is, except you get to do it with amazing dancers and bodies and who are perfectly trained instruments. So it was, that felt kind of second nature to me. Now, for me, doing a lot of action, 
I don't care about blowing up a truck if it doesn't have any meaning. But if it actually tells you something about the character or about the context of situation, I think it's really exciting. So that's certainly something. And how you block a scene and moving camera felt kind of second nature to me. And I think anyone who comes from another field, there's always things you bring to the party. And then you have to learn a whole other vocabulary. You know, I didn't know anything about camera lenses and how they make you feel emotional. And that was a great learning experience. So the most recent project that you've been working on is Homeland, which recently concluded its season. And we don't want to get into any spoilers or nitty gritty about what maybe happened. So we'll keep this a pretty generic conversation. Okay. But it seems like throughout most of your career, you would kind of jump in and out of different series, right? You would direct, you know four or five episodes of West Wing and then jump over to something else. But with Homeland, you've been there for quite a while now. And you've also been executive producing it. And I wonder why that show. Well, that's a great question. One of the things about Homeland that has kept me there, plus I work with the nicest group of people there, where, you know, you don't want to be the smartest person in the room, you want to be in the room with the smartest people. So that is just a joyful experience. But also that every season, we move to another city, we kind of reinvent the wheel, and dealing with very different content. So for me, every year is different, and it changes within the novel of the whole show. And I'm about to go to D.C., uh, which is something that Homeland does every year, the writers as well as Claire and Mandy. And we meet with, uh, we spend a week meeting with different experts in the intelligence community. And that's really where the next season comes from. And that is an extraordinary experience. Yeah, that seems really incredible. I was wondering about how much more rewarding that must feel Even just that aspect of being able to really do a deep dive into researching something compared to sort of parachuting in and being there for just a couple episodes. It's wonderful. You know, I love, again, it's like comparing it to a novel. You're there for the whole thing. You know, it's great to come in and do a chapter and you're part of that big picture. But to be there for the whole novel is really exciting. And You know, I love that process. And certainly we have, you know, made quite a strong traveling circus of this homeland family. I mean, we, you know, season four, we were in Cape Town, South Africa. Season five, we were in Berlin. And then last season, we were in New York. And it was, you know, bringing the show back to New York at this particular time in terms of what's going on in America has been feeling very appropriate and really kind of thrilling with what we're looking at. Life imitating art, imitating life, imitating art. (laughs) Yes, indeed. I would love to ask you a little more about Claire Dane's character, Carrie. She's such a complicated and unique lead. Let's listen to just a little clip of Carrie and Saul played by Mandy Patinkin, and she's in the hospital. um, And this is early on in the series. The Avenue's here has methods and patterns and priorities. A single sniper? No. No, Avenue Zero doesn't do that. He, he never has. He, he never will. He goes big. He explodes. He mains en masse. We know that. Slow down. Slow down. Well, facts. Facts are facts. And we have about a week, maybe less, to figure out the real target. Not this single shot to the president's spy novel 101 bullshit. Oh, well, actually, that's the working theory. Well, it's wrong. I mean, it's, it's incomplete. Walker's not even critical. He's just a part, a piece, a pixel, a pawn of no importance. There is a bigger, pernicious, Abu Nazir-worthy plot out there, and we have little time. We, we have to code it, collide it, collapse it, contain it. Right, lie down, Carrie. What's it like to build a world around a character who has 
a reality that's very complex and then an alternate reality almost that's living in her mind. Well, you know, that scene, she was definitely in some sort of manic state or close to it. And Carrie Matheson is a very complicated, layered, complex character. And she's brilliant. And she is also bipolar. And, you know, the last few seasons, she has indeed been medicated. And part of that is to explore both sides of that particular condition has been fascinating. And Claire has done a lot of research. She is an amazing partner in crime, I have to say. Uh, She is fearless. She is not scared to explore anything. And yet she is nothing like Carrie Matheson as a person. Claire is fun and funny and uh, the most wonderful number one on a call sheet. She makes it a great working environment for other actors. She's very generous. So it's interesting to see this very different person Claire Danes become this character, Carrie Matheson. And you really see how subtle and skilled she is. But I think what's kept her so excited about the character, again, is this layer of complexity. You know, Carrie doesn't always make the right choices. In fact, she makes a lot of complicated choices, but she is always interesting and compelling. And I think to see a female character who is as complicated and layered as any man, you know, because we're so used to allowing men to be that, have that many aspects to them. I think it's great that now in television, we see women who are equally complicated. And I love that. I'm not sure I've ever loved so much so many unlikable characters because they're just so fun to watch. TV's getting so fun to watch because of them. Yeah, it's, you know, and the whole show. I mean, one of the reasons that, again, staying with the show is that we live in this world that is shades of gray. There is no right and wrong. In fact, some of my favorite scenes are when characters have completely opposing views and they're both right. Yes, I love that you said right choices and complicated choices, because that does just sort of reframe everything, right? It's not about the black or white. It's about nuance. Yes. You know, look how complicated the world we live in is now. And to look at so many different issues that are so current makes it very exciting. And I think what it does is hopefully make people think and talk and dialogue. And there isn't one right way to see this. One more quick question I have to ask, which is, how often does Mandy Patinkin burst into song on set? I just want to know. If he doesn't burst into song every now and then, I get really sad. (laughs) And to have Mandy Patinkin sing you a song on the set of Homeland, you know, which is not a laugh riot. Like, fortunately, behind the scene, we're very funny. We have a great set. But, you know, the material we're dealing with is hardly comedic. So it's a wonderful break from all of it to have Mandy sing you a song. That's exactly what I was hoping you would say. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Coming up, we talk about West Wing and Gilmore Girls and Freaks and Geeks. My three favorite shows. I know, the best shows. All the the best best shows. shows. (laughs) You're listening to Nerdette. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast crew, and author Viet Tanwen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max 
and listen to the Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Leslie, you've directed both film and television, and I wonder what are the main differences between the two? Well, when I'm approaching a story, I don't approach it any differently. And with what's happened with television now, it has to be a cinematic experience and a visual storytelling experience. We're so used to seeing films on TV, films on iPads. You may or may not be seeing the film in the theater. So I think the storytelling experience is very similar. What's very different about TV is the amount of time you have to shoot it. Because if you only have 10 days to shoot your episode, that's not a lot of time. So you have to know what is the dollar scene? What is the scene that's going to determine whether the story works or the five scenes that are so important that are turning points in your story? And what's the 25 cent scene? What's the scene you're going to have to move quickly through? Not that it's not important, but it's not, the story doesn't hang on it. So I think what it does for directors working in television is really clarify your skills as a storyteller and know knowing what your story is about, what the themes are, what the subtext is, how you're going to organize your day if you only have this limited amount of time. And I think that's a great like muscle to flex. How different is it to walk into a room where you've got a showrunner who's maybe writing the show like on West Wing or Newsroom with Aaron Sorkin? How do you figure out how to become a part of that family as quickly as possible to get the work done? That's an excellent question because as a guest director, you're always going into different worlds and you have to very quickly assess the situation and how you're going to move through it. And before I even get there, I will do a lot of homework. So I will talk to other directors who have done the show. I will watch everything that I need to watch so I'm up to date with where the story is. And then you have to play well with others, but you have to have a point of view. And because you are telling a chapter of their novel, you have to respect the whole of the novel, but again, have a very clear point of view about how you want to tell your particular chapter. So it's a balancing act between the two. I loved working with Aaron Sorkin. He is a brilliant, brilliant writer. And he also had a fantastic directing partner, Tommy Shlami. And he was a great lead into not just the politics of the series, but how to do it in a successful way. He was kind of a guide. And that's fantastic to have. And that's what I hope I am on Homeland for our amazing directors who come in is giving them all the information they need so that they have a great success with telling their story. And needless to say, I went back to West Wing many times. I loved the material that was being explored. I love being in the back room. You know, that always interests me with Homeland as well as I want to be in those rooms with the smartest people. I want to hear how decisions are made politically in our government. I want to know what those conversations are and invite everyone else else in to see that. You directed one of my favorite episodes of West Wing. I'm one of those people, just so you know, Leslie, some of our listeners already know this, some might not know. I'm one of those people who has watched West Wing too many times, start to finish. <laughs> oh, that's 
so great. I'm one of those. <laughs> and so when I looked on your IMDb page to see which episodes of West Wing, here's a clip from Election Night, which you directed, which is oh, one of my yes. very favorites. No balloons, no confetti. Why? It's not a party. It is a party. Yeah, but we won. We don't have to pander. Please don't say that. On your birthday, don't we pander to you? Not as much as I'd like. I'm not kidding. What are you babbling about? We haven't won anything yet. The speech is done. Two speeches are done. What's the second? I've got a speech if he wins. I've got a speech if he doesn't. You wrote a concession? Of course I wrote a concession. What do you, you want to tempt the wrath of the whatever from high atop the thing? No. Then go outside, turn around three times and spit. What the hell's the matter with you? It's like 25 degrees outside. Go. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's the first scene I ever directed on West Wing. Really? Yes. Oh, wow. I mean, as a West Wing nerd, I've listened to lots of interviews with Aaron Sorkin and with members of the cast, and it feels to me like one of the most analogous experiences to working on a play and the way that they would rehearse and the way that they would work through so much dialogue every week. Did it feel more like doing theater than doing TV? Yes and no, because the actors have to be dead on with the dialogue. In some way, it's like doing Shakespeare. Like if you don't have the language down cold, you can't rise above it. But in terms of how I shot that scene, it was very cinematic. And the West Wing scripts were basically dialogue. There was very little stage direction. And at first, that was kind of terrifying. Like I looked at a script, it doesn't say anything. It Maybe it would say where the scene was set, like it was set in the Roosevelt Room. Well, ultimately, I didn't start the scene in the Roosevelt Room. I started the camera looking through a window on a TV set where people were standing around looking at the early election returns coming in and went in a hallway and came through and then followed someone into the Roosevelt Room where people were already talking and then the camera moved around the whole table. So it was actually very cinematic and had a lot of energy to it. But that was left totally up to the directors. And what I loved about working on West Wing and having, again, Tommy Schlamme as the executive producer, director, in combination with Aaron, was that he just encouraged you to bring your A-game in terms of how you were the visual storyteller of this episode. And that was thrilling. So you also directed the pilot of Gilmore Girls, as we mentioned. And I wonder how that experience is different from a show like West Wing that's already so well established when you're jumping in. I love doing both. But to be the one doing the pilot is thrilling because you get to establish the look and feel and the tone of the show, you know, what the world is and who those actors are. Gilmore Girls was an amazing project to work on. I worked with Amy Sherman Palladino, who wrote the script, who's a wonderful writer, who is now directing. In fact, I just talked to her a couple of weeks ago and Gavin Pallone. And we were like a, a trio you know, trying to get this made. And Amy's writing is uh, very quick-paced, very smart, with a lot of references to culture and literature and music and just filled with layers. And one of the things, I'll never forget this, you know, we were reading for Lorelei, and there was a reference to Jack Kerouac. And many actresses came in to read the role, and they read Jack Kerouac. (laughs) 
and we couldn't believe it. We couldn't believe, like, <laughs> first of all, that they hadn't heard of Jack Kerouac, but that they pronounced it wrong. And we realized, you know what, we actually can't cast someone who doesn't know who Jack Kerouac is. Uh, and, of course, when Lauren Graham came in and read for the role, it was like, oh, well, that's obvious. Here she is. This is Lorelai. So that's also exciting when you find the person that you know is that role. And Alexis Bledel had literally done like two school plays when we cast her. Right. She was actually a high schooler, right? She was that young. Yes. You've worked with teens in another show that is beloved for me, which is Freaks and Geeks. Yes. Yes. (laughs) It's, I think, still my favorite depiction of that age and that moment and all that angst ever put on tape of any kind. I couldn't agree with you more because it feels so real. You know, these were kids you grew up with. It was not classical TV casting in any way. It felt like the real world. And I think it made you, like, really remember that time in your life when you were growing up and the pain and angst. And it felt so real and so present. And, you know, it only lasted 18 shows. Maybe it was too real. Too present. Too pure for this world is what I've said on more than one occasion. Yeah, too pure for this world. But look at the actors and the directors that came out of that single show. It's like every amazing comedian (laughs) that we have. It's kind of fantastic. And, of course, Judd Apatow and Paul Feig are incredible. And when you come in as a guest, I came in episode three. When you're on for a new series, you're part of helping them figure out what the show is. And sometimes it's not till like the eighth episode you're like, oh, that's what it is. So to be there in the very beginning was really exciting. After the break, Leslie tells us about her secret dream to open a store, a store that would allow us to do many, many things at once. Plus, we give you enough summer homework to keep you out of the sun for like three straight months. (laughs) You're listening to Nerdette. I can't stop thinking about how you described directing when you come into a show that's already existed. You said you have to be able to play well with others, but still have a point of view. Yes. I wonder, do you ever think about like what other jobs you would be qualified to do with the skill sets you have? <laughs> you know, like to me, you kind of seem like the Olivia Pope of directing. <laughs> but boy, is she dressed well. <laughs> I think a director has to be able to be and do a lot of different things. Like I think, oh, yeah, maybe I should go into therapy. You know, <laughs> that would be a good one. And certainly organizationally, like producing or creating events, because you have to keep the big picture going at all time, but also the detail. And I could probably also work at Starbucks, too. I think I could, you know, handle the pressure of a non-fat, vanilla, extra hot, extra foamy latte, too. Is that something you ever, like, daydream about on really crazy days at work? Like, I yes. could just be at Starbucks. Yes. No, my, my fantasy when it's an insane day and things are completely out of control is, oh, okay, I could open a poetry reading 
bookstore slash flower shop, maybe 24-hour shoe store. Ooh, 24-hour shoes. This makes me think right? you have had late-night needs for shoes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's kind of the fantasy. And of course, <laughs> you know, thank goodness I love my job because that would be a hard thing to pull off, the 24-hour shoe store. You know, I fantasize about opening a bookstore. So if you, if you ever need a buddy, I'm here for See? you. See? I mean, how great. That sounds fantastic. All right. One last question before we let you go. Sure. What homework would you have for the Nerdette listeners? Go watch an amazing movie or TV show. Go watch again To Kill a Mockingbird or Citizen Kane or go back to your favorite TV show and watch it with different eyes and enjoy. Enjoy just being a great, you know, watcher of storytelling. Thank you for the permission to rewatch West Wing one more time, <laughs> Leslie. As I if will you take needed you up on it. the permission. <laughs> and, you know, I have to say, I really look forward to eating some mean sushi with you one of these days. Absolutely. I will do that in a heartbeat. Beautiful. Leslie Linka-Glotter, thank you so much for talking with us on your net. Thank you so much. Thank you, Greta and Tricia. Okay, Greta, what are you going to do for your homework? What are you going to rewatch this summer? I mean, I am kind of in the middle of rewatching The West Wing. <gasps> you are? It's happening. Oh, it's happening. I'm always doing that. And at the moment, I'm not. But it makes me really happy that you are. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a great show. What can I say? Maybe we should both expand our horizons a little bit also, though. And watch some new TV that's coming out this summer. There's some really great shows coming back this summer. Some of my very favorite shows are coming back in June, July, and August. So we should probably make sure we watch those too. Yeah, I think the one I'm most excited about is season two of Insecure comes out in the third week of July. This is made by Issa Rae, who also made Awkward Black Girl, which was a web series. This is a show on HBO, though, and Issa Rae is also in it. And it's about best friends and 30-somethings just like trying to figure out how to wrangle being an adult. And it's funny and smart and just really great. Yes, Issa Rae's show comes back in July. Then in August, my favorite Hulu show comes back. That's Difficult People, starring Julie Klausner and Billy Eichner. They're terrible on the show, but somehow lovable all the same. And it usually has really great cameos. Last season, it was Ken Burns and Lin-Manuel Miranda. So who knows who we'll see on the latest season of Difficult People, but I will be watching every minute of it. And you know what just started up again is season five of Orphan Black. This is the BBC America show that stars Tatiana Maslany playing, what, like eight? at least. So many clones. People. Yeah, it's all the clones. It's suspenseful and fun and also kind of silly. Like, it's a really nice combination of all of those things. So definitely check out Orphan Black, too. And, of course, we must mention mm-hmm. one more thing, and that is Broad City. Yep. Abby and Alana are back for another season. I don't think they'll have grown up. I don't think they'll have figured out their lives, and I'm really looking forward to watching them be terrible humans also. I really, this is like the summer of complicated, terrible women on television, and I'm all for it. Absolutely. So Broad City comes back August 23rd. Be sure to check that out as well. And if you haven't seen it now, is a great time to catch up. And speaking of catching up on things, if you haven't seen Game of Thrones yet, now probably is the time. Because if you're caught up on Game of Thrones, you can watch it every Sunday night with us, and then you can hang out with us on the internet while we talk about it with Peter Sagal. You're not going to want to miss it. There's patriarchy jingles. Gather around and listen while old Peter Sagal mansplains this show to you. Yeah, you should really just tune in for the patriarchy jingles. The show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson, along with Candace Mattel. Our executive producer is Joel Meyer, and our intern is Brady Guy. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on NPR One, or listen in the WBEZ app. 
If you want to help out Nerdette, it's really helpful, actually. I know it seems like a small thing to do, but it actually helps us out a lot if you give us a bunch of stars on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to R2E2, which is spelled in a funny way, but it's definitely, I hope, meant to be like R2D2. I mean, it's gotta be. And Jim in in lowercase in, capital I-N-N, which makes me think Jim is in Indiana. Jim is definitely in Indiana. Thank you for the kind reviews and the stars to R2E2 and Jim in Indiana. You can do the same for us by reviewing the show wherever you listen. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We are at Nerdat Podcast. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. But also, like, go outside sometimes. Yeah. But, like, not in the heat of the day. Yeah. <laughs> in the evening, at night, when the sun has gone down. Yes. <laughs> Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.